listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the 14th of June, 2022, and I'm joined from the east of the United States via Zoom by journalist and author Katie Stallard to talk about her new book, Dancing on Bones, History and Power in China, Russia, and North Korea. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you all, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can. Spotify allows ratings but not reviews. Apple Podcasts allows both. And on YouTube, you can like and subscribe us. And please also, if you find this an interesting episode, share it with everyone you know and three people you don't. Secondly, check us out on nknews.org and consider buying a subscription uh, that helps to fund the excellent journalism put out by my colleagues every day. And thirdly, you can follow nknews.org, all one word, on Twitter and myself at JackoZ. For podcast suggestions and feedback, you can tweet at us or email at podcast at nknews.org. Okay, so to introduce my guest today more properly, Katie Stallard, previously based in Russia and China as a foreign correspondent for Sky News. Now she's senior editor for China and Global Affairs at The New Statesman and author of Dancing on Bones, History and Power in China, Russia and North Korea, which will be published in the United States, uh, or I should say was published in the United States on May 2nd. Uh, and in the United Kingdom will be published on August 1st. You can follow her on Twitter at Katie Stallard, all one word. Welcome on the show, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a longtime fan of the podcast. Thanks. That's great. You are one of uh, five people. <laughs> I kid. It's I, an, I elite, think... an elite and a, and a highly well-selected group. Yes, it's like the Central Committee or the Party Center. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I want to start by reading the first sentence of your book abstract, which you were kind enough to send to me. Uh, Dancing on Bones examines how the leaders of Russia, China, and North Korea exploit the history of past wars, specifically World War II and the Korean War, to shore up popular support and frame contemporary challenges and foreign policy. Uh, given what's going on in Ukraine, it's obviously a timely book, and so I want to ask, when did you start writing it? Well, I started writing it, I guess, early 2018. Um, but the idea really came out of the start of the war in Ukraine. So when I was I was based in Russia, mm. um, but but covering covering Ukraine and traveling backwards and forwards a, a lot to 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 Ukraine, Crimea, um, and then what, what became the conflict uh, in eastern Ukraine in 2014. And yeah. it really struck me there very early on how prevalent the Second World War history was. So what, right. what Russians call the Great Patriotic War, yeah. right from the first days of, of that conflict, people were referencing that war and framing the current fighting in terms of that history. So that was what really sparked my interest in understanding what is the version of history that you would learn if you grew up here and how is that shaping mm. how you see these these current events and we've seen that earlier this year with uh, the launch of uh, russia's uh, war on ukraine version 2.0 with the constant references to denazification which to anybody outside russia make no sense in ukraine but in that discourse that's being used it, it uh, completely fits in yeah, I mean, people who watch Russian state media have been being told really in earnest for for eight years since mm. 2014 that Nazis and fascists have taken control of the Ukrainian government and that they're carrying out terrible atrocities against civilians in the East. But that really plays into this this broader history, which has become so prevalent and so important under Vladimir Putin, he has really elevated the history of the, of the Great Patriotic War more broadly and, mm. and really used that to try and rally 
popular support behind his rule. So he has he's made the war this sort of you know front and center, very, very prominent part of, of Russian contemporary identity. And then he he's he's drawing on that um, and with this idea that now once again, as before in this you know great heroic conflict, Russia is called upon to, to do battle against the, the forces of, of fascism and, and Nazis, which obviously is, is plainly you know, ridiculous, has, has no basis in, in reality. But if you're steeped in that media system and that information environment, you know, I, I had plenty of conversations with people who truly genuinely believed mm. That is what was happening in Ukraine. There was a there was a famous story. I think it was 2015 that this was being reported, that Ukrainian government forces had supposedly crucified crucified a child. Mm. Um, they were said to have have captured this three year old boy and crucified him in a public square in eastern Ukraine as a lesson to to others who were sympathizing with the Ukrainian government forces, uh, which which was not true, but it was aired on on Channel One. There, mm. there was a woman who claimed to have witnessed it, who described you know heart rending details of this little boy's screams as as he was tortured in this public square and um, so that was the version of reality that viewers of russia's most watched television network were getting about that war and it and it was effective i mean mm. you know obviously not everybody believed it but for people who were tuning into that world um you know that's what they thought was going into ukraine and that's that's the backdrop to, to what's happening now. And, yeah. and this, you know, the, the narrative that, that once again, you know, Russians are the good guys um, and their soldiers are, are doing battle with these forces of evil um, in, in Ukraine right across the Russian border. What does the title of your book mean, Dancing on Bones? Is it a, a quote or a reference? Yeah, this is a quote from a, a Russian activist um, who started his own memorial movement in Russia to try and remember. He felt like the way the war was being commemorated had become very bombastic, very militaristic. And he and a couple of friends started this movement that they called the Immortal Regiment, where they would just you know, march quietly holding pictures of relatives who had died in the war on the and anniversary. The war you're talking about here is the Second World War? It is the Second World War. So right. yeah, they, they would hold hold photographs of relatives who died fighting in the war and just march sort of quietly and, and solemnly on the anniversary instead of these, you know, the, the great bombastic parades that you see through Red Square. Mm. But that movement became very popular. Um, hundreds of thousands and then millions of people wanted to take part in it across Russia. So the authorities co-opted it, um, worked it into the overall memorial celebrations and made it part of the, the, the official commemoration. So Vladimir Putin today walks at the front of this new sort of state-sponsored version of the Immortal Regiment. Mm. Um, and he and his friends really felt this had been taken over. It had been turned into something it was never meant to be. And his quote was that, that the authorities were dancing on bones. They were uh. taking the memory of their ancestors and everyone who had fought and died in this world and yep. in this war mm -hmm. and using them for quite cynical political purposes. Now, in the book, you look at uh, North Korea, Russia and China, but this podcast focuses mainly on North Korea. So I want to get all my North Korea questions out of the way first and then come back to the overall big picture of the three countries. Mm -hmm. uh, so I understand that you've been on uh, at least one reporting trip to North Korea. So uh, tell us when that was and, and what the occasion was. Um, that was uh, 2016 for the uh, Workers' Party Congress with Kim Jong-un. And the, I mean, I, I want to be clear and I want to, you know, I make the point in, in the book that, you know, I think there can be a lot of what James Pearson at Reuters called, you know, rare glimpse reporting mm -hmm. of North Korea, where we, you know, we go in on what are effectively junkets, 
do our best to, to not show other journalists in the back of our of our shots and right. you know make out like we're getting some amazing exclusive access you know i want to be clear it was as part of a very organized press trip a very choreographed um you know really i think a junket is is the right word to describe going in but but that said it's still you know it was it was i think valuable um to be able to to go there and and see some of see some of this with with my own eyes and and, and talk to some people for myself mm. now the uh, the american novelist william faulkner wrote this famous sentence or actually it's two sentences the past is never dead it's not even past and mm-hmm. i'm very much reminded of that when thinking about uh, North Korea and history and how it uses history to frame its present disputes and disagreements. And in, in North Korea, it sometimes feels like everything that happened in Korea and to Korea since Kim Il-sung's birth back in 1912, and even some events before that, are still very, very current. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck. I mean, I, I reported a lot on North Korea from, from Beijing. So I had you know, watched a lot of the propaganda, read a lot of the speeches, and then going there um myself i was really struck as as you know so many of your your listeners will will know how prevalent that history is i mean i mean literally in the center of pyongyang the arch of triumph mm. this great monument carved with the date 1945 to to commemorate these events that you know there is truth at the core of these stories but but a lot of what has been built around them is is largely fictional or at least very greatly exaggerated. So, you know, standing there looking at the the Arch of Triumph, which one of the minders pointed out is, is bigger than the, the one in, it's the exact replica of the one in Paris, he said, yeah. but this one this one is bigger. Yeah. And asking him about the history, this, this commemorates and, you know, being told that this is, you know, it's engraved with the date 1945, because that's the date Kim Il-sung and the Korean partisans liberated the, the Korean peninsula from, from Japanese rule, which, which of course is, is not what is not what happened, um, but has been literally etched in stone in the center of the capital. But why is it so important to North Korea to believe that Kim Il Sung himself and his partisans uh, single-handedly defeated the Japanese rather than uh, the armies of the Soviet Union and uh, and the other Allied nations? One of the things that I thought was interesting um, in the course of researching the book is how much that story has changed, and that at the start the story was the other way round, and actually. Mm. One of your colleagues, Fyodor Tartitsky, has done some mm. great research on this. That in the in the very early days of North Korea, in fact, Kim Il Sung paid great credit to the Soviet army and to Stalin, and 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 did not try to take credit for for liberating the peninsula. But over time, that story has come. You know, at, at the start, it's the Soviets, and then you know, a decade later, it's the Soviets with the Koreans supporting them, mm. and a decade later than that. The Koreans are are in the are in the lead, and now, as you would be told that story, it's pretty much single handedly Kim Il Sung and the and the Korean People's Revolutionary Army, you know, an organization that we have no evidence actually existed, depicted you know in great detail on this triumphant charge back into the Korean Peninsula, liberating the the and the place erupting with with cheers uh, and, and triumphant celebrations for, for Kim Il-sung. So it, it has become this great story over many decades, but I think it's so important because it goes to the heart of the story that the Kim regime tells the population as to why they must be in power is because they they descend from this great leader who, who twice, according to the official version of history, has supposedly de- you know, defeated these, these great empires, first Japan, 
and then the United States um, in the Korean War as it's presented and, and, and defended North Korea. So that's, you know, it, it's sort of the ultimate claim to, to legitimacy and to why the Kims with their, you know, revolutionary sacred Pactu blood mm. um, must, must, must be in power because they're, you know, going right back to the founder. They are the ones who have, who are, or at least their, their people are told, who have, who have defended the country and, and, and repelled these great foreign threats. So basically, it, it helps to build up Kim Il Sung and his family's legitimacy to believe that he was the the, the leader of the uh, of the liberation. Yes, yeah, it gives him a, it gives him and it gives the present day regime yeah. this heroic backstory and this really extraordinary claim to power. If you know, if you were to take at face value everything that he's said to have done, mm. you know, he's an extraordinary, you know, semi mythical leader. Mm. Um, so, so that that is tremendously valuable to to both his son and now to his grandson uh, Kim Jong Un. Now, I'm guessing here uh, that uh, Brian Myers might argue that since Kim Il Sung spent most of the Second World War in the Soviet Union, not fighting against the Japanese, mm-hmm. specifically because the Soviet Union and the Japanese had a, a non-aggression pact or a, or treaty or agreement. Anyway, the Soviet Union wasn't at war with Japan until the last two weeks of the Second World War. And so basically, Kim and his partisans who had sought shelter in the Soviet Union were told, you know, uh, basically, cool your heels, do some training, but do not go out and fight the Japanese. And so they weren't allowed to fight the Japanese. And, and at this three to four year period of, of non-activity, if it were known in North Korea, would be you know, quite deleterious to the reputation of Kim Il-sung as a, as a, a great battle leader. Uh, and that that it may be in a way a kind of overcompensation, saying, well, not only was he fighting, but he he led the the liberation of North Korea of all of the whole Korean Peninsula, I should say. Yeah, I mean, it actually the the, the story doesn't even make make sense. I I actually I asked Taeyang Ho, Ho about this um, a, a couple of years back when he was he was visiting DC. Um, you know, how what is the how can this story possibly be? Be logical if you if you do take it at face value and you believe everything that, that you're told that Kim has raised this uh, tremendous army he's liberated mm. the entire peninsula but then the next day the peninsula is divided with no mm. further wars being being fought so even if you take it exactly as it's supposed to happen it it, it does not make sense mm. and he said but that's just not that's not what people are, are are taught it's not about people you know being encouraged to 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 reason and examine and and really scrutinize the history it's about you know learning this is the right version of events and being able to to replicate that so it, yeah. i mean the story does not does not make sense and you're right to point out i mean he as it's you know when you see now kim jong un on his horse retracing supposedly his father's mythical battle sites on, on mount pektu i mean that mm. that's not where kim il sung was fighting. He yeah. was he was in Manchuria in northeast China, and then, he, as you rightly point out, once the the Japanese had had really taken control of, of of northeast China, he was forced across the border into the Soviet Union, and then he was there until after the end of the war. He didn't return to the Korean Peninsula until September, so you know he wasn't even physically on the ground, um, mm. let alone fighting these fighting these great battles. Um, and he, when you go back and look at some of the early records, he goes to a Soviet officer um, at one point quite early on and asks him to write the Koreans back into the liberation story. And the, and the Soviet officer records that, that he said no. Mm. The, the, the Soviets were concerned. While they wanted to 
they they wanted to build up the idea that he was this guerrilla war hero because that helped lend him legitimacy and they needed someone who was a who could be a credible figurehead in mm-hmm. North Korea because you know the, the south had 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 seen Wenri. so they they were invested to a point in building him up but they were concerned that if they went too far and they gave him too much credit that he might he might get out of control um he would he would demand much more so the soviets mm-hmm. were also wary about the story um, that that he came to tell, and it's when you look back through the the archival records by the by the nineteen fifties, once the story has really started to take off, and Kim Il Sung has started to to take more of the credit. The senior Soviet figures, Leonid Brezhnev, is one of those who who goes to Pyongyang for for Congress in nineteen fifty six and come back comes back complaining mm. about how much credit Kim is now taking um, for that war and how how out of control. His personality yeah. cult is getting so even those who were who are nominally supportive of of the of the regime were concerned about the extent to which he was falsifying this history and really trying to take so much of the credit for himself. Let's talk a bit about the start of the Korean War. Uh, it's been it's basically agreed upon by historians that while there were skirmishes and battles of various sizes all along the inter-Korean border that was the 38th parallel in 1948, 49, and 1950, that it was actually, it was North Korea's leader Kim Il-sung who launched an all-out war along the parallel only after obtaining the support from Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. Uh, Nevertheless, North Korea still maintains the line that South Korea started the war at the instigation of the United States, represented in the form of the then Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. Uh, regardless of its accuracy, what's the usefulness of this narrative? Well, the usefulness is is you know still being used today to argue for for why the North needs to build up its military strength, why it needs to develop its its weapons programs. You know, in the current iteration, why it needs to to spend so much money and and channel so many of its scarce resources into the nuclear program, mm. because it's this story that North Korea has been attacked. You know, the the, the Kim regime's version of history has North Korea as as a you know a, a peaceful republic simply you know trying to trying to to live as a as a as a socialist uh, a happy socialist paradise and to keep its people safe and and build towards a prosperous future but it keeps being attacked by these um hostile foreign imperialists so the idea that North Korea has been attacked unprovoked and then suffered dreadfully again puts the Kim regime in the position as as heroes defenders because it's Kim Il-sung who once again is said to have led this heroic extraordinary resistance and in in North Korea's version of that story to have defeated the United States you know the the way that that they present it is that mm. you know they were they were attacked um unprovoked uh, this this terrible surprise offensive but Kim Il-sung was able to draw on his skills from his previous guerrilla combat against the Japanese to, to retreat, to draw the, the imperialists further north up the Korean peninsula, and then mount this extraordinary counterattack, um, force them back across the 38th parallel and, and bring them to their knees um, and force them to sign the sign the armistice uh, agreement, or is it's really kind of presented as a de facto surrender um, mm. in, in the north. You know, if you again, if you if you believe that, and if that's the only version of history you have access to, then Kim Il Sung, twice in a decade, has defeated first Japan, then the United States, brought these you know driven these mighty empires 
out of out of North Korea, defended defended his people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, his son and his grandson claim that they are following in his footsteps, that they similarly are defending the country from these terrible foreign threats, which have never gone away and which mm. could be could be plotting um, to attack to attack the country once again. I actually I got the chance to go to the DMZ on the actually on, on both sides, but when you go from the from the North Korean side, you're you're told, you know, this is the most this is the most dangerous place on earth. Mm. And you're really given the impression that, you know, you, you're told, and in fact you're told this on both sides, that our soldiers are will keep you safe from now on because, you know, this is such a this is such a dangerous place and you know things things could erupt at, at any moment. So yeah. you know that story is terribly powerful. And if you don't have access to um to any alternative sources, it could be quite compelling. But again, it, it goes to the heart of why the Kim regime says it must be in power, that it must build up the country's military strength, and now that it must develop these weapons programs. Now, North Korea, in its education and in its children's comic books, which have long been an area of fascination for me, is always reliving the Japanese colonial period and the Korean War, uh, forever talking about the bad things that the Americans and the Japanese did. Uh, And it promotes the idea that Koreans will be avenged. Uh, And there are posters that I've seen uh, pledging 100,000 times revenge on behalf of the North Korean people for what the Americans have done. And in fact, the emotion that I see most often from North Korean propaganda is not so much a fear or a sadness about U.S. attacks or Japanese colonialism uh, and a desire to live in peace with her neighbors going forward, but rather anger, uh, regret at not having been a stronger nation back then, and a desire for revenge. Did you find that too? And does such an emotional slant use historical narratives in a certain way? It certainly does. What, what I would say just as a caveat to that is that I found there was a disconnect and, and from other people I've, I've talked to too, that there was a little bit of a disconnect between the sort of the abstract idea of Americans and, uh, you know, thrice fold revenge against the terrible American imperialists and then relating to individual Americans. Um, mm. It, it there did seem to be somewhat of a you know that that didn't necessarily translate into personal enmity. In fact, the mm. opposite. Um, you know, I, I, I'm British, but American friends who, who've who've travelled there more often say they, they've really never experienced you know any feeling of, of sort of personal enmity from belonging to from belonging to to the United States. But I think, but it certainly, it does really go to the heart of what people are told about about why the country must be strong. And I think it, you know, it's one of the elements that makes me quite pessimistic about, you know, we, we saw, and I, I know, you know, some people are, are, are terribly optimistic that, that Kim Jong-un was on the verge of, you know, striking a great bargain with, mm. uh, with, with Donald Trump a, a couple of years back. One of the things that gives me pause about the prospects for that is the extent to which the regime does rely on this story. And that, you know, it would be very difficult to keep that going if you did have much more exchange of, of information and, and people with the outside world. You know, it, it would be it would be hard to keep that story um, as central as it as it is now. And it is, you know, and Andrea Abrahamian writes writes about this in, in his book that even during those summits, so while that was going on and while people were reporting that you know, some of the anti-American propaganda had been taken down in Pyongyang and some mm. of the areas where, where visitors were more likely to see it. That still, you know, the, the, the Sinchon Museum of American Atrocities, which 
um, you know, is this extraordinary exhibition of, of um, these terrible tortures and murders that American soldiers are, are supposed to have carried out against Koreans uh, during the Korean War, uh, for, for which you know, there's no evidence that that is the case. But this, this museum, which preserves that version of history, was still functioning as normal. You know, he describes watching the coaches pull up outside, you know, the, the workers' parties, you know, tour the exhibits and then be taken outside to the, the revenge pledging place um, mm. to, 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 to vow their revenge. So even, even as Kim Jong-un was pursuing diplomacy, the regime was still doubling down on that version of history that it was teaching at home. And, it, you know, it, it's one of the things that that I have asked to, to South Korean diplomats, you know, it, would it be, you know, one element of, of, of showing good faith would be to, for instance, shutter the Sinchon Museum of, mm. of, of Atrocities or, or to change somewhat, the, just to lessen the, the fervor with which people are taught about that history would be part of, you know, it would be a way without threatening the physical security yeah. Um, of the country to to show that North Korea is serious about engagement internationally, and it and they have all all scoffed and laughed and said no, that's so you know that is not a a, a credible area for negotiation because mm. that's you know that's a that's a central part of the North Korean regime story, and they will not you know that will be the last thing that they give up is yeah. that version of history. The uh, the Shincheon massacre. Uh as you said, it took place allegedly between the 17th of October and the 7th of December in 1950 in South Hwanghae province. And I, I read the excellent English translation of Hwang Sog Yong. He's a South Korean novelist. His novel, mm -hmm. The Guest, which is all about not just the massacre, but precisely about remembering it and memorializing it decades mm -hmm. later. Uh, mm -hmm. And he so wrote that novel after having traveled to North Korea and having met uh, Korean Americans who had been at, at Shincheon. And basically he leans towards it having been a, a Korean on Korean massacre mm -hmm. from both sides that the North Koreans conveniently blame on Americans because it's much easier to externalize the enemy than to look at an enemy within one's own race. Yes, yeah, the, the evidence that has been uncovered and, and the historian Adam, Carth Adam Cathcart has also written has written very well on this that the that the evidence that has been uncovered does suggest that this was inter-Korean mm. violence, but that doesn't fit the story mm -hmm. of the of the Koreans being sort of pure, vulnerable, and being themselves victimized yep. by this by this outside power, which, which is the Americans. So it, it is much more politically expedient to to blame this on the United States. Now, uh, let's talk about nuclear weapons. Uh, North Korea uses some aspects of its history to justify its development and manufacture and possible future use of nuclear weapons. Uh, one aspect of history that it doesn't talk about much anymore is how fervently anti-nuclear it was until around 1990. And you can still find uh, on the internet and in old books, you can find photographs of people, foreigners, who are invited specifically to Pyongyang and encouraged to march through the streets with nuclear disarmament slogans on it, even while North Korea was probably already secretly working to develop <laughs> its own nuclear weapons. Yeah, I mean, so the story changes as and when it as and when it needs to. Stay. It just as you say that, I'm reminded of the you know similarly. North Korea was fervently against hereditary succession mm. until until it was decided that Kim Jong Il would be the would be the successor to Kim Il Sung, and then that entry was taken out of the dictionary. Um, so, you know, the, these positions 
you know, I guess that, you know, one area that can be cause for optimism is, you know, there have been 180 degree shifts in, in policy and it, and it is possible to, to say, you know, the thing that yesterday we said was, was terrible and was something that only exploitative capitalist societies do. Actually, that's the best possible course for North Korea and everybody will now begin discussing why hereditary succession is the best possible model for, for North Korea. So it, it is possible to affect these abrupt changes, mm. um, but it's just it's it's striking how how, how cynically the regime has, has adapted these ideas for its own purposes over over many decades now. Now the uh, the current uh, chairman of uh, of North Korea's uh, Workers Party, Kim Jong Un, uh, has been in power for ten years, and he's using those uh, historical narratives to uh, to fuel current. Activities that develop building missile systems and uh, developing more nuclear weapons, and to continue a hostile stance against what he calls a hostile stance towards North mm-hmm. Korea uh, by South Korea, America, Japan, etc. I wonder, could he have chosen a different path when he took power ten years ago if he had wanted to? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, one thing that that the regime does have is an option of various enemies. And and one thing that you can see at times is emphasizing different enemies. So, for Mm. instance, North Korea could play down, you know, or or at least could stop fanning the the flames of of anti-Americanism and and still draw on the on anti-Japanese sentiment, which is something that particularly, you know, in in a future where there is more um, integration with with South Korea, there would be a you know that would be a common enemy that that, that they could that they could call upon. So there is, and you know, you see this more explicitly happen in, in China, is is enemies shifting. And for instance, the United States moving from being you know ally during the Second World War to enemies during the Korean War to then you know some position again of, of reflecting on the on how they were allies during the Second World War post the Nixon visit, and then now back to, to very much, you know, imperialist enemy during the Korean War. So the history is flexible somewhat, depending on the on the politics of the day. But that story is so, it's so useful, and it's so central um, to, to the current leadership in, in, in North Korea, that it's difficult to see that they would be minded to, to take the opportunity uh, or to, to risk rather um, rather getting rid of that story because it it has served them so well um, mm. over over sec- seven decades um, at this point. So it would be a very brave uh, decision to move away from that. Now, is North Korea both a threat and being threatened? Are both things possible at the same time, or are they mutually exclusive? I, so I think that you can, without being too credulous about the the vision that uh, Kim Jong-un paints about the outside world, you know, some of, I, I think that there is a distinction between why the regime says it needs nuclear weapons mm. and why it, why it genuinely believes it, new, it needs nuclear weapons. And speaking to regime officials, and I had the chance, for instance, to interview the ambassador to, to the UK a, a, a few years back, mm. he was surprisingly forthcoming in terms of you know obviously he he referenced how you know he talked about when we weren't strong in the past when we didn't have nuclear weapons we became a japanese colony and and we learned for ourselves mm. you know the, the dangers of being weak 
But when we look around us at the world now and we see what happens in Afghanistan, we see what happens in Iraq, we see what happens in Libya, we see what happens to countries that don't have nuclear weapons. Um, and, you know, if North Korea did not have nuclear weapons, you know, perhaps there would be very different discussions about the about the potential for, for regime change and, and the and the type of options um, mm. that that the West might consider. So, you know, w- without buying wholly into the narrative, you know, th- there is logic to what they're to what they're saying. Yeah. Now, what are the different cultural and communication tools that the North Korean government uses to get these messages across to uh, to its population? Well, really, this starts very early childhood. Um, you know, I, I I got the chance to to visit um, kindergartens in Pyongyang, as I think most journalists do mm. um, when they go through. And, and one of the things that you see, for instance, is just the, you know, the artwork on the walls. Yeah. Um, the, um, you know, from, from kindergarten and particularly from, um, I got a chance to go into a, into an elementary school and, and there it's, you know, so the, the kindergarten is very much sort of, it's, it's militaristic, you know, the squirrel and the hedgehog, cartoon creatures driving driving tanks and and rocket launchers um and there's very sort of there's a sort of martial military theme to a lot of the artwork but it's not as graphic once you get into the school system then it is you know freezes on the on the on the school corridors depicting Mm -hmm. the sinchon massacre um right you know showing um you know really really bloody gory scenes Um, and that's and that's very much through also then the, the popular entertainment. So, um, you know, cartoons, you mentioned comic books. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I discussed this with, with, with one friend who spent a lot of time in North Korea, and she said it was sort of like, you know, the, the cartoons are sort of Tom and Jerry, but to the nth degree, and mm. where, you know, it's very clear who is the, who is the, the heroic um North Korean uh, character standing up to the you know these these evil villainous Americans yeah and um, so it, so it's really from a from a very early age and then that's and then that's reinforced through the you know political indoctrination sessions through and and right up through then into Kim Jong Un's speeches and, and the and the all of the you know the official events that that people are required to to study mm-hmm. really reinforces this same. The same narrative, you know, how how the country was attacked, how it suffered, and why it's now um, why it's now becoming strong and able to to defend itself. So it's that idea, um, and this and this version of history is really baked in from a very very early stage, and it's something that some of those who have escaped have commented on of where they perhaps were disaffected, and you know, it's a, obviously a, a very self selecting group people yeah. who, who have escaped but where they may have been um, quite disaffected with with the regime even even the leader themselves they often did still comment that they found that history persuasive and that that was one of the hardest things to accept was that was that the country hmm. had not been attacked unprovoked at the start of the korean war that that just that was such a bedrock part of education from a very early age that it was very that it is very difficult um to accept that, that that wasn't the case and that that was a lie that they had been told does your research lead you to conclude that uh sooner or later north korea 
would be likely to launch some kind of aggression on South Korea or Japan or both? I mean, I think the regime is very interested in self-survival and self-preservation. So I think it's it's sort of in a position where it can never afford to fully vanquish these enemies and it, mm. and it can obviously, it, it can't afford to lose. So I think, you know, assuming that Kim is getting reasonably good uh, intelligence, then I think it's certainly possible that there would be more, you know, provocations on the level that, that we've that we've seen and attacks short of what they believe will provoke a serious military response. I think that yeah. that's absolutely within the realm of possibility. But in terms of, you know, I, I think we see, you know, increasingly this idea that, you know, does Kim Jong-un plan to try and unify the peninsula by, by force? You know, would would he stage a large scale attack on South Korea? And I think just for someone who has spent so much so much time and who seems to be so interested in, you know, he has potentially a very long, he's not even really in, in, into the into full middle age yet. You know, yeah. he is potentially another half century right. in power if he lives as long as 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 his grandfather did. Yeah. Um, you know, I just I don't think there's a reason to think that he's reckless um and that he would do anything that would seriously jeopardize um, his own personal survival mm. and the survival of, of the regime. So, it, you know, it, it makes sense to try and keep this such that, you know, there is a there is a tension on the issue. There are efforts to placate him, to engage him and, and to, you know, to where he thinks that that's valuable. But there is no incentive to go beyond that and provoke an outright conflict, um, which, you know, the, there's, there's certainly no guarantee that that he would win and would not result mm. in terrible you know terrible losses and, and further devastation okay let's uh, zoom out a bit now and, and and look at the the broader themes of your book isn't that isn't it the thing about history in all times and all places that countries pick and choose which bits to remember and how to remember them or how to carry them forward don't all countries do this yes they do i write this in, in the introduction I, I talk about growing up myself in in the uk and the you know, the degree to which the Second World War's history mm. plays into cultural identity there and the extent to which it is used cynically, you know, for political purposes. Mm. We saw that during the Brexit referendum. Um, and I, I now live in the United States where there is a live and ongoing debate about which parts of history to remember and, and should, you know, should we look critically at the past? Should we only remember the, you know, the, the glorious heroic parts? Um, mm. Researching the book and really thinking through these questions, I came down very firmly on the side that 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 approach to history really only serves those in power and the existing mm. um, the, the the existing um status quo that that doesn't serve individual citizens it doesn't help to tackle any of the any of the real present problems that, that the country faces and so we should really guard against you know it, it is very seductive mm -hmm. to hear these you know wonderful heroic stories about you know ancestors and, and how they fought fought during the war but you know i think we should be very wary of people who come bearing those stories mm. um because you know they are highly selective and i think it is really much more in our interest to complicate those narratives as much as as possible and to look at you know growing up in the uk you know we we focused on on the D-Day landings, you know, Dunkirk and, mm. and the heroism on the Western Front, we did not talk at all about the firebombing of Dresden. Mm. Um, you know, we also did not talk very much about, you know, all of the terrible suffering and dying that was happening in, in China. You know, we 
we we focused on a very selective version of history and that doesn't you know that doesn't serve us uh, as citizens of our own country or, or citizens of citizens of the world to be uh, to be idealistic about it so you know yes you know in short this does happen everywhere and the temptation to do it you know anyone who wants to be in power or who wants to keep power would be well served to to appeal to history you know as selectively as they can and to make it suit them but you know we as citizens should be should be very wary of that and i think where you get to in each of these three countries is where it becomes very difficult to challenge those official narratives you know in, in some cases dangerous in, in some cases you know perhaps you risk losing your job you know in russia now you risk going to prison for a very mm. long time in in these countries it has become very difficult and very dangerous to to challenge that narrative so you know there there's been a bit of discussion here in the us about whether i've seen it mentioned in passing that perhaps we should have our own campaign against historical nihilism you know, mm. warning bells should sound, sirens should flash. We absolutely should not seek to emulate this this approach. Well, let's talk a, a bit about Russia and China. What do they have in common with North Korea and what sets them apart in their use of history to fuel current grievances, wars or territorial disputes? Well, why I approached the three of them together, which, you know, with hindsight was a probably slightly ridiculous scope of a project to undertake, was because I felt that they were the three countries that I, as a reporter, was was focusing on all of the time, and that seemed to be in this grouping of countries that were presented in the West as being, you know, the, these great threats to the international order. And I was struck by the extent to which the stories that you heard on the ground inside these countries, and, and you know, the version of history that they told about themselves, was very different to how they were being. Um, represented and portrayed in the Western media. So I wanted to sort of take these three countries that I felt we talked a lot about and try and understand a little bit more from the inside out about, you know, how, how do they approach this period of the past? Because, you know, I think with all three, there is kind of this temptation to believe that, you know, they are strongman authoritarian regimes, that, the you know, the, 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 the men and they are all men, um, at the top, you know, are almost sort of Bond villain-esque, um, mm. you know, running running these countries from these, in, in Putin's case, enormous tables in the in the middle of the Kremlin, you know, commanding their their minions, pulling a lever, and, and their will being done. And it struck me that you know the reality is very very different um, and much more much more complex, much more nuanced. And in, and in fact, um, in all three cases, they they are going to quite a considerable extent to 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 seed a story as to why they must be in power and to justify their actions to the populace you know it's a totally separate question whether people actually believe that or not yeah. but there but there are very real efforts to you know to justify their claim to power to justify their weapons programs to justify their foreign policy um so i i, I wanted to try and understand that um and try and you know, try and understand it a little bit more, you know, at ground level from the inside out. And is there anything that sets North Korea apart from the other two? I mean, North Korea, well, there's, a, there's a lot that sets North Korea apart from the other two. I mean, I, mm. I, have, I have purposely very simplified um, yeah. and, and very and very tightly focused. You know, I, I looked specifically at the use of this wartime history, so World War II and, and Korean War history in across the three countries. You could write another 10 books about stories around ethnicity, um, 
ideas of unique Koreanness. Well, I guess Brian Myers has already written a couple of books yeah. on that, but um, you know, there there is a much um, you know, for all of the these three countries, there is a much bigger, much more complex set of stories around national identity. Um, but I I just I wanted to pick one subject that mm. would be possible to trace across all three. So that was why why I wanted to look at, at, at the wartime history. I mean, you know, the the obvious also, you know, I felt that they were each within various different degrees of in, in terms of access to information. You know, when, when I started the, the project, Russia was a relatively free media environment, at least mm. at least online. You know, if you wanted to, you could get on the Internet and look up anything you wanted, whereas North Korea was at the, as it was at fully the other end of that spectrum right. um, in terms of access to, to any information or, or online, as, uh, as you know, it's really more of, of an intranet. Mm, yeah. um, so, that, so there were gradations across the three countries uh, in terms of, you know, the, the, the specifics and the sort of tactical details. But, but what was common to the three was the extent to which they were drawing on this, on this story of the war. And in, you know, in, in all cases, at the very least, a, you know, a highly selective, very distorted version of the war. Um, and in North Korea's case, you know, in, in parts of that, as we've discussed, you know, actually not, not even true. Did you find elements of religious or pseudo-religiosity in these three countries in the, uh, in the service of present-day warmongering? Oh, ab- absolutely. Especially so, you know, in, in the Russian case, you know, you really see that happen quite explicitly during during Putin's term in power is the extent to which he has rehabilitated the Orthodox Church and how, you know, how important, you know, he he has a, a moment in, I think it's 2021, um, when he sort of ties these threads together and, and visits the opening of this cathedral that's dedicated to the armed forces um, on the outskirts of Moscow, where, you know, the entrance steps are made from melted down German weapons. And it's mm. sort of, it's, it's almost like a literal temple to the, to the heroism during the second world war. And he tours it with Patriarch Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox church. Um, so I've written about how, you know, he, he stands out outside this cathedral with these sort of, you know, key elements that he's appealing to, which is God and the history of, of the war and the message that Putin is really broadcasting there is that you know god and history are on my side so he you know he is really it, it really started to come back properly under yeltsin but putin has seized on the orthodox faith and really associated himself um very very personally with that looking back at the the russia ukraine situation now back to the last 8 years would you say that the uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine was inevitable? I mean, were we on that track from 2014 or, or could it have gone differently? For me, I think I should have been less surprised than I was. You know, I, I, I'll be completely honest that I didn't think he would invade. Mm. Um, to me, I think that Putin is a rational actor. I think he's fairly careful. I think he does take risks, but they're calculated risks. And to me, it just looked like... You know, Ukraine is an absolutely vast country. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, I, I've traveled a lot across it. It's more than 40 million people, you know, for, for context, Russia is 140 million people. So trying to, you know, trying to evade, invade and potentially then occupy a country that is almost, a, you know, almost a third the size in terms of population, wholly opposed to, to Russian occupation, just seemed to me that, you know, militarily, would be so catastrophic that I couldn't believe he would 
he would go ahead with it with hindsight and of you know as soon as I remember very clearly the morning that the full-scale invasion started and hearing the language that he'd used when he talked about this mm. demilitarization and denazification yeah. campaign and feeling just sick to my stomach because I felt like of course like of course this is where this was leading yeah. I had there had been part of me that was always just a little bit cynical as to you know how well would this really hold up you know it's one thing to really get behind the second world war mm. history and to really celebrate you know the, the return of Crimea for which there was really very little there were sanctions but there was very little meaningful price to pay for that I was skeptical about how well that would hold up once mm. there was real damage to the economy once young Russians were coming back in coffins um, and I did not fully expect that Putin would risk that but with hindsight of course this is what he was building towards and you know that, that old phrase about when someone tells you who they are believe believe them the first time you know Putin has been telegraphing mm. very clearly how he sees the world that he doesn't believe Ukraine is a sovereign state he doesn't believe it's a real country he right. I think he genuinely does believe that it is being controlled by the West and therefore you know every year that he doesn't take action is another year that Ukraine gets gets arms and gets training from from NATO members so I you know I, I think I don't believe that this was a sort of the idea that he you know he's he's terminally ill and he's and he's mm. acting out as one last final gamble you know I think this is quite a clear strategic decision that Ukraine was leaving Russia's orbit um it was only going to get more so once the last sort of pro-Russian oligarch was arrested um last year I think he saw this as as the only way to 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 keep Ukraine or at least to dismember Ukraine to the point where it could never threaten Russia which is a very a very long way of saying I, I was I was wrong <laughs> looking across to uh, the China Taiwan situation now in light of what's happening in Ukraine do you have any thoughts on that so I do see that as very separate from Ukraine um I think what what will be being learned you know by both by both Taipei and Beijing is the extent to which some is you know some of these tactics have and have not worked and I think on on the on the Taiwan side really investing heavily now in in asymmetric capabilities in ensuring that that this would be a, a very high cost operation why I think it's different is because I think in China's case it would be driven very much by domestic considerations I I think for Putin he saw Ukraine as a as a you know wrongly um but but did see Ukraine as, as a national security threat I think China sees Taiwan as a as a as a domestic matter and mm -hmm. something that would that would go to the core you know getting this wrong and making the wrong decision on this from Beijing's perspective would jeopardize so much of what the Communist Party leadership ha has worked for for so long now in terms of economic growth, in terms of being able to, to show why they need to be in power from that perspective. You know, that they, they would they would put all of that in danger to go after Taiwan. And, and I think they would really only do it if they felt, you know, maybe, maybe a maybe a legitimate comparison with Ukraine is if they did feel that it was now, you know, it, it was it was now act now or or act in five years. Mm. If you know, if if they believed that Taiwan was 
was leaving was leaving the option of, of ever um, of ever I guess being returned or, or coming back as they would see it if they thought that they were going to that the opportunity was was now slipping away on a permanent basis perhaps they would act perhaps this is perhaps this is overly optimistic but I, I you know I, I think she is is cautious is not keen to blow up you know his legacy particularly you know not in the near term as mm. he's seeking it seeking a third term in power and while the military capabilities you know it it really is a very you know it, you know we, we've seen how the how the russian army have struggled in ukraine you know trying to do that um at, at sea against a heavily defended um island you know this would not be a small undertaking so you know i i think we can be optimistic that it's you know it, it's not imminent but i think we are moving into a, into a very dangerous period where she will be considering his legacy and, and where it certainly, you know, it wouldn't be beyond the bounds of possibility. Last two questions now, Katie. What would you like to include in an updated version of the book if you were to publish it next month? <laughs> well, that's very easy because this, it ends with the Russian army massed on the borders of Ukraine in yeah. January of this year. So, I mean, you know, I would absolutely have an epilogue looking at exactly what what has happened and the extent to which Putin has really drawn on this um, denazification um, narrative. So he, you know, he, uh, unfortunately, that you know the, the the thesis is is being is playing out in real in real time. And it and I would also add that it has proven so far much more effective than I than I thought it would be. You know, it mm. it, it it is holding up, or at least it is very difficult to argue with it with it publicly. Mm. Um, so we're seeing. You know, in, in real time, we're seeing how dangerous these historical narratives are, and the and the absolutely devastating consequences that can flow from them. Now, I'm wondering about the uh, the audience of your book. Who do you think will give your central messages the best reception? And is there a danger that you might be preaching to the choir? Well, I guess I I, I wrote it for anyone who I guess. In, in honestly, the answer to this is I, I I was thinking about people like my father who are very interested in what's happening in the world and aim to keep across world events and follow what's happening, mm -hmm. but don't often have the chance to to go to these places themselves um, or to sort of you know immerse themselves in the history. So the idea was really for anybody who, <laughs> like my father, an, an audience of one, um, yeah. is just interested in, in understanding. You know, it's. I think there will be a lot of people who have a depth of knowledge in one of these countries or perhaps even two of these countries, but it was really to try and take people, you know, on the ground to the extent that I could and take you through, it's, it starts in, in 1945, so take, take you through the last, the last seven decades and, and yeah. give you a sense of how might you be educated about, about history in, in these countries and how might that shape how you view how you view the, the the leadership and the and the future um, for the country. So I guess the answer everyone gives in their book proposal is it's for the it's for the average um, you know reader of the New York Times or the Guardian newspaper or or the New Statesman who um, would just like to to be able to immerse themselves and and go a little bit more into detail into these countries that you know we, we hear so much about they're so often in our headlines. But so few of us will, will get chance to, you know, to travel through and see for ourselves. 
Yeah, and in a way, as we talked about earlier, um, these these lessons are uh, are universally applicable, aren't they? That uh, uh, all countries can be at risk of of using history to serve cynical modern day ends, and we we also saw that in in George Orwell's novel, of course, 1984, that you quoted in your book. So uh, it's it's uh, it's something that keeps coming back again and again. It's you know it's not just for North Korea, China, and Russia. No, no I mean, and you see this. You, you see so many examples of this in, in so many countries, but it has made me think, you know, much, much more critically about my own country's history. And mm. it, and it, as I say, being here in America, watching the, the debate over which part of history to remember, you know, I, I feel incredibly strongly, um, mm. having spent so, so long working on this book, that, you know, history should be complicated. It should not be a grand heroic narrative um, that everybody comes out of looking looking fairly good and heroic. You know, we, we should absolutely remember as much of the you know the, the terrible and, and the dreadful things um, that our ancestors and our countries have done, um, a, a, as well as the sort of the more culturally prominent elements that that we perhaps you know choose to and and it, and it, that it's more comfortable perhaps to focus on. Mm. Well, thank you once again, Katie Stallard, for coming on the NK News podcast today. Listeners, you can find her on Twitter at Katie Stallard and look out for her book, Dancing on Bones, History and Power in China, Russia and North Korea. And ladies and gentlemen, if you've already have an NK News subscription, do have a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services, specifically catering to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. You can inquire about access and a free trial membership at membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Arias Dare and Brian Betts for facilitating this podcast, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time. <laughs>